turn to Ephesians chapter 3. You know, it's Thanksgiving break, and so a lot of people are, are traveling right now. So as we were thinking about it this week, we thought it would just be good. I've really got one message left in the first half of the book of Ephesians. So I'll save it for the, um, for the last week that we're all together in, in a couple weeks. But this week, uh, I've been meditating on, on a theme in particular, uh, just on being friends with God. And I know that's going to sound kind of interesting to you, but uh, I've been meditating on that theme, and it's really closely related to what we've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 3. So just as a bit of a segue here, you know that Ephesians, the first half of the letter, we've talked about this uh, over and over, but the first half is really laying the foundation for us in the Christian life of what God's done for us in Christ. It's all on Him. The focus is all on Jesus and God and the Father and the Spirit and, and how they're working in us for our salvation. And it's, it's magnificent. The, it's just unbelievable what we've seen so far. And we've, we've sort of ended in, in the end of chapter 2, start of chapter 3, learning about this idea. All of it's culminating in the fact that we are the temple of God. We're God's new temple, um, his, his end-time dwelling place. That's, that's what the church is. God raises from the dead in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, raises from the dead. He's created us to be his new humanity, and now he dwells among us as his, as his new people, the, the end-time temple. And that's just an incredible privilege. And closely associated with this theme, though, of God dwelling with us, in the te- or God dwelling in His temple, God dwelling with His people, closely associated with that is this idea of God walking with us or walking among us. So when we hear this term walking, it's, it might conjure up different images for us, but the one that we should be thinking of is the idea of friendship. God is walking with His people in that He's, he's friends with them. He's communing with them. Um, this phrase, like I said, is a companionship phrase. And the theme of, of being friends with God is an incredibly rich theme. And it's one I've been meditating on for, for a while now, and especially this week. So I wanted to, to take a chance and, and um, just take a break from Ephesians and really deal square on with this theme about being friends of God. So we'll do it for the next two weeks, because Thanksgiving kind of takes two Sundays away from us in terms of people. So we'll, we got a part one this week and a part two next week. But just as we get going, I, I want to introduce you to this theme of, of friendship with God. If you flip in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Actually, it'll be in Genesis 3. We've talked about this before, but Genesis 1 and 2, uh, especially Genesis 2, describes God creating humanity, putting them in a garden, a cultivated garden. And there's lots of uh, imagery in Genesis 2 that would remind a Jew of the tabernacle and of the temple later. And so I think that's intentional because the garden was the place where God met with man. It's where he he communed with with mankind and it was from which man was going to multiply and then mediate his rule over the earth. And I think this is 
this is hinted at in a number of ways, but one of the ways is after they fell, after they sinned against the Lord, look in chapter 3, verse 8. They, they hid themselves from God, but that, that happens because they, did, they, they heard the sound, verse 8, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, why did they, they hide? Well, because they heard God walking. Well, okay, well, he was walking. That means he's there. But I think specifically what, what they were saying is he was walking to them. He was coming to, to commune with them again like it was his normal practice um, as he was interacting with, with Adam and Eve um, in perfect fellowship. And they knew that they had ruptured that fellowship, that they, had, that they had substituted the true God for an idol, and they knew that they were in danger of judgment. And so they, they did what we all do. They tried to hide, um, which is the worst thing you can do. Uh, and yet God was still incredibly merciful to them. So the relationship in, in, in the garden was ruptured. God had previously walked with them, and now... They were going to be exiled from the garden, uh, end of chapter 3. But there, you, we've talked about this again before. There's a promise that the woman would bear a son and that that son would then reverse this curse. So the rest of the Bible really traces this line, this lineage of Eve, and to see exactly how this is going to unfold. But if we take our theme about walking with God, it, it pops up again in chapter 5 of Genesis. So if you flip over one, one more, really my Bible, it's one page. You've got this genealogy that's tracing the, the, the lineage of Eve and, and this son, this offspring that's going to come. And everybody's dying in this genealogy. I mean, this, the, the author is over and over just emphasizing that. And he died, and he died, and he died. And then you get to Enoch in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch, catch this, walked with God. So mysteriously, somehow, there's a way to walk with God outside of the garden. And Enoch, through, I think, repentance and faith, um, had the relationship restored and is described as walking with God in intimate fellowship, intimate friendship with God. And after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And what happened to him? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So an incredibly intimate relationship here where he even escaped death. Fast forward to chapter 6. Noah comes from the lineage of Enoch. And chapter 6, verse 9, these are generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And what happened with Noah? Noah walked with God. So again, you see this theme of people being able to walk with God outside of the garden. And God begins to build this. But this is the exception. Okay? This is the exception. People generally don't walk with God. Uh, what's more common is that every intention of the thought of their heart was only evil continually, verse 5 of chapter 6. And so the only point I'm trying to make here is that as you go through Scripture, you'll see, like this is Noah, you'll see Abraham is described as a friend of God, Moses is described as a friend of God, he talked with God face to face as a man talked with his friend. So these major figures in the Old Testament are friends of God. They're covenant mediators, really. And they're, they're God's friends. Friendship has been restored to them. Well, there was a promise so as, as Israel became a nation. And in Leviticus, God promised that if they believed and they obeyed and they did what they were supposed to do, that God would then make his dwelling among them and would walk among them. And that would be he would restore friendship with the whole nation. 
It's what Leviticus says. It's what he promised them in Leviticus. Well, they obviously failed in that again and again and again. And that led to their exile. And then when they were in captivity, the prophets came to them with a new message of hope about a new covenant that God would make where he would again take up residence with his people. We've seen this in Ephesians. would take up residence with his people and he would walk with them again. But it would come as a result of the new covenant. Not the old covenant, not the Mosaic covenant, not the one that they had, God had cut with them on Sinai, but a new covenant that would happen through a new mediator. And so, in comes Jesus, right? Who is the, the new mediator of the new covenant. And really, the ultimate friend of God, if you want to put it that way. I'm not sure if Scripture ever calls him that specifically. But... Flip over to Luke chapter 7, verse 34. Jesus came, and one of his designations here, it's actually a a slander in the, the mouths of his enemies. But one of the descriptions of Jesus is that he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, that is staggering. And again, this is in the, this is in the mouth of, of the, really his, his, the people of Israel or his, his enemies at this point. Verse 34 says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say to him, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus has come to, to be a friend to sinful people. Luke 7:34 He's a friend of sinners. Flip over to chapter 15, he eats with sinners. Chapter 15 verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, "This man receives sinners." That's another that's more friendship language. "Receives sinners and eats with them." Now, we could say it like this. How, that raises a major question. How does Jesus become, who is the Holy One, become a friend of sinners? Well, he's, he's going to do it through his, his death on their behalf. So Jesus dies to make us friends with God. That's the way that we could say that. So as we, we look at this, we're going to unpack this more as we, as we go today. But, but as, you're, as you're interacting with this stuff and you're thinking, man, he's, God has, has brought me in now in Christ to be his friend. There's one of two common reactions that we, we typically respond to with that. One is sort of a flippant reaction. Yeah, of, of course, like, of course I'm God's friend. You know, like, of course you, I'm, we're, we're chums. You know, the, the familiar Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, which is a real trivialization of this theme of, of friendship with God as we see it in Scripture. So that's the one extreme. But then there's another extreme where I think many of us find ourselves, which is friends with God. Like, he is, he is holy, holy, holy. It seems presumptuous of me to come and, and claim that I am his friend. It seems that I should never speak of the king in such familiar terms as that. I'm just his servant. I mean, yes, he's forgiven me, he loves me, he's gracious to me, but friendship seems too intimate, right? Um, at least I know that's, that's often where I find myself. I wouldn't articulate it quite like that, but that's, that's where I find myself um, more often than not if I'm trying to peg myself on the, on the spectrum here. 
But that's not a good reaction either. I mean, it's, it's better than the last one because we're recognizing that God is holy and that we are unworthy, and that's true. But we need to take it a step further. The right reaction is to humbly receive this friendship, to grow in it, and to learn to reflect it back to Christ and others. And what we're going to find is, is this theme is incredibly transforming to the way that we think about our Lord Jesus. Incredibly transforming. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to get a glimpse of what our greatest friend is truly like. And then next week, we're going to look at how we should respond to his friendship toward us. So we're going to look at him as the friend, and then, and then how we should respond next week to him as, as friend. And they go together. As we experience his friendship... We could say it like this. As we experience his friendship, we become better friends. We become more faithful friends to Jesus. We become more faithful friends to others. So, that's where we're going. And today, we're going to look at six characteristics of the friendship that we have with Jesus. Six characteristics of the friendship that we have with Jesus. And this is going to be pretty simple, but I think you'll find it extremely encouraging. First, Jesus is a compassionate friend or a tender friend. Changed my word in my notes and I didn't change the outline. <laughs> Sorry about that. Tender or compassionate friend. We all have friends and, and prize friends who enter our pain, don't we? It's like one of the marks of, of true friendship. We value friends who understand and treat us with compassion and tenderness. Probably right now, hopefully, there are one or two people coming to your mind. But I just want to encourage you this morning that we won't find a more tender person than our Lord. It doesn't exist. He is never harsh with us. He never treats us unkindly. He is never irritated. He's never frustrated with you, but he always treats us with tender compassion. Is he grieved? Can he be grieved by us? Yeah. Can he be righteously angry? <laughs> yes. But as uncommon as this is to us, his righteous anger doesn't cancel out his compassion. His compassion is, is always there. Our sinful anger cancels out our compassion many times, but not with the Lord. He is always compassionate to his children, to us, to his friends. He is a compassionate friend. And one, one familiar story highlights this aspect of Jesus in a beautiful way. It's the story of Lazarus in John 11. So go ahead and turn there. John 11. And there's a lot here, obviously, and I'm, I'm merely just highlighting this aspect of the compassion of Jesus in this story. These opening verses, the first 16 verses of this chapter, are filled with friendship language. And I want you to listen for it, okay, as we read it. Filled with, with tender, compassion language. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. These are disciples of Jesus. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So they knew it. They knew they were loved by the Lord and especially Lazarus. 
He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Again, listen. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Man. So, (laughs) there's a lot we could learn just from that. That's not my point. Uh, the love motivated him to stay and let Lazarus die. It's worthy of our meditation. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in his sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins and said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. I'm sorry, but just, that's my point in these verses is to show you that did you hear the language? He whom you love is ill. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, verse 5. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. These people were treasured and loved by the Lord. And they knew it. They knew that he was compassionate toward them. They appealed to him on that, on that very basis. Later on, in, Jesus encounters Mary's grief at the death of her brother. And notice how moved he is in verse 30. We'll pick it up in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he not have, he who have opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? So there's a lot going on in the story, like I said. But what I'm trying to highlight is the tender love of Christ in a story where he knows he's going, coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. He sees his sister weeping, enters into her pain, and is moved to compassion and genuine. This is not insincere. I mean, and we're, we're told that right here. Everybody who is, maybe, there might be borderline insincere. The other Jews that are there kind of weeping and wailing with them. They notice that Jesus is really, like, really loves Lazarus. They say it. See how he loved him. With the way he grieved in the pain of Mary for the death of, Jesus, for the death of, of Lazarus. This isn't some temporary quality in Jesus. Like, true of him in the first century, but not now. He was like that then and remains full of compassion today in this moment. He loves you just as much as he loved Lazarus. 
He's deeply moved by your pain. He's not only aware of your brokenness, but he enters into it alongside you as your compassionate friend. He's so close to you in this way that that he even speaks about our suffering as his suffering. Remember what he says to to Paul on the road? He confronts him. Why are you persecuting me? Paul's persecuting Christians. But it's as though he was persecuting Jesus himself. He is tender and compassionate. And before I leave this point, I want to add one more text to the picture of Jesus' compassion. For those uh, weak souls like mine, it's actually a messianic prediction in Isaiah that gets picked up in Matthew. And I'm just going to quote it here from Isaiah. We could say it like this. Jesus' compassion is restorative. It's restorative. It's extremely tender. Look, notice this, this text. A bruised reed, he will not break. This is a prediction of what the Messiah will and won't do. And it's a metaphor here. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It says he won't break a bruised reed or put out a smoking, um, how does it say it, wick. Reeds that were bruised weren't good for anything. Like they were weak. So what they would do is they would, they would be broken off, burned maybe. Definitely discarded. But here, we're compared to the bruised reed. We are the bruised ones, and we're compared to the smoldering wick. And likewise, that was put out. It's like a smoking, smoldering thing that you just put it out. Stop the smoke. But Jesus, the Messiah, that's picked up again, directly quoted in Matthew twelve twenty of Jesus, this is picked up and applied to him in terms of how tender he is toward those bruised reeds and smoking wicks. He doesn't extinguish the smoldering wick. He gently comes next to it, starts blowing it, just nurses that flame back to health. He takes the bruised reed. I don't know how you would even do this, but he bends it back up, strengthens it, makes it into an effective reed, metaphorically. Talking about his relationship with us. So Jesus is this this kind of friend to his followers. He's always compassionate always restorative, always entering into our pain in order to help us. But, how do I know that he's compassionate like this toward me? Okay? You're saying this generally, but how, how do I know that he's true about that toward me? Well, he proves it by his death, and that leads to our second um, designation here, our second characteristic. He's a selfless friend. He's a selfless friend. Now, this almost goes without saying. But it's so central to Jesus' friendship to us that we have to talk about it. We're all humbled by friends who deny themselves to help us, aren't we? You experience that? Friends who give of their time and energy and money to benefit us somehow, some way. Friends who act for our good with no motivations of sinful self-interest. That's rare. But we won't find a more selfless friend than our, our Lord Jesus. He gave his very life for us. He took the fall for us when he was innocent so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus himself in John fifteen thirteen says this succinctly yet powerfully. He says, Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And this is a great friendship passage, John 15. 
But what's especially incredible about Jesus, as is, is, is though that's not incredible, it is, uh, but what's in, very incredible, especially selfless, is that Jesus died when we were his enemies in order to make us his friends. We weren't his friends. We weren't, we weren't dying as his friends. He wasn't dying for us when we were his friends. He was dying for us as his enemies. Look how Paul says this in Romans 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't even his friends yet, but he died in order to make us his friends. Get this. His actions prove that he is serious about making us his friends. His actions show that he is committed to doing what is absolutely best for us at the greatest cost to himself. He proves it in one act. And it gets better. He did it willingly, joyfully, and freely. Even though he doesn't need us at all, he desired a relationship with us. He desired to reconcile us to God. He desired to bring many sons to glory, the way Hebrews puts it. He delights not just in saving us, but in communing with us. You get that? He wants a relationship with you. This joy and delight motivated him to endure the cross. And that's the end game. That's the end goal of his Salvation of you. In, in the Bible's term, is called reconciliation with God. Jesus will never, ever, ever sinfully use you. He'll never act selfishly toward you. He never has and he never will. Just look to the greatest expression of, of, his, of this in the cross. And even in the kingdom, in the kingdom, when he comes, He will reward us. And Luke 12, 37 says, He will take up His task in continuing to serve us in the kingdom. That's Him. That's our selfless friend. But there still might be some lingering doubts. What about my sin? Well, His death propitiated all of God's wrath toward your sin. We just described that. His death enabled God to forgive you. But even beyond that, There's never a time that Jesus is surprised by something he finds in you. He's never caught off guard by any sin in your heart. That's because he is a familiar friend. He's a familiar friend. When I say familiar, I mean he's familiar with you. He's familiar with you. He's profoundly familiar with you. There's nothing left in your heart to surprise him. He sees it all already. This knowledge of Jesus pops up all over the place in the Gospels, but one example is going to suffice here. The disciples are privately arguing about who they think is the greatest, and Luke just casually writes that Jesus knows the reasoning of their hearts. Let me notice here. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side, and then he began to teach him a lesson about this. So that's, he didn't just say he heard them, and he put the child in front. He's, Luke makes the point 
for you to see this is God incarnate and he's reading their hearts, reading their mail, everything. He knows it. Just x-ray vision. He sees exactly what's going on. We put it like this. Jesus is more aware of your sin than you are. That's a fact. He's more aware of your sin than you are. You can write, you can write down Psalm 139 and, and study it later. In that text, it's talking about God's awareness of us. God is aware of thoughts that you will think in the future. Words that you will say, but you haven't said yet. Motives that you will have next week, but you haven't had them yet. <laughs> he knew when he, he... This is, I mean, this is some incredibly profound familiarity with us. But here's what I want to emphasize. You're fully known in all your sinfulness, more than you could ever even know, and yet you are fully and completely loved. It's profound. You'll never be turned out. Jesus is never going to find out something about you and then reject you as a result of that, like so many of our friends do. He already knows. He knew when he died. And he knew when he promised to forgive you and save you. It's an incredible friend. And uh, just a really quick footnote on this topic. I could have made it another point, but I chose not to. Because I'm already not going to... I'm already going to run out of time. That's a given. Jesus has been familiar with you for a long, long time. He's been familiar with you for an eternity. Before you existed, he planned out your redemption. He chose you to be holy and blameless before him, Ephesians 1.3. So he's not only your most familiar friend, he's also your oldest friend. Now, I know it's hard to believe that Christ's friendship gets better than this, but we're just scratching the surface. So we're beginning to feel a little bit of what Paul says when he's talking about the unsearchable riches of Christ. We're starting to feel that a little bit. Not only is Jesus compassionate, selfless, and familiar, but he's also a constant friend. A constant friend. We've all had the experience of a friend who who promised to be there for us and then didn't. Wasn't. Sadly, many of us at one point or another have actually been this kind of friend. We've been a fair-weather friend. But Jesus' friendship toward us is characterized by complete constancy. That's an old word. Constancy that was used, uh, especially in talking about friendships and the value of friendships. But it's characterized by complete constancy. If you want a more biblical word, faithfulness. And it's utter faithfulness. Utter dependability. He'll never leave you high and dry. He's always, pers- he's always present with you and He's always persistently committed to your, your good, your best good, your, the, the best thing for you. Many so-called friends leave us at our worst moments or moments of extreme suffering or hardship or calamity or poverty. But that's precisely when Christ most profoundly moves in with us, whether we realize it or not. Listen to Paul's own testimony of this in 2 Timothy 4.17. He's in prison, and he was on trial, and he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. None of his friends came to stand by him. But all deserted me. 
may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord stood by Paul and strengthened him. He wasn't left. He wasn't abandoned. When his friends deserted him, his greatest friend didn't. He showed up and he stood by him. And to be a, to be a constant friend is to be patient in weakness. Think about that. It's to be patient in weakness. That's an aspect of being a faithful friend. Is you're patient. And that's exactly what we find in Christ. His patience is described in 1 Timothy 1.16 as perfect patience. Perfect patience. Think about that. Jesus is unwearied by our failings. He can't wear them out. He's unwearied by our weaknesses. He's unwearied by our frailty. He's not fatigued. He's not frustrated. He hasn't had enough to hear with us. He doesn't change up on us. He doesn't have bad days or inexplicable mood swings. That doesn't happen with the Lord Jesus. He's constant and patient. Now, don't get me wrong. He's, he's grieved by our sin. We understand that. He doesn't leave us in our, our, our weakness. His faithfulness actually motivates him to change us for the better. That's the goal. I mean, is to be a faithful friend is to, is to work change in you. He's persistently committed to our good. Philippians 1.6, he's going to complete the work that he started. And that's what it means for him to be a constant friend or a faithful friend. And part of the way he changes us is through being an honest friend. Through being an honest friend. Number five, fifth characteristic of our friendship with God. He is an honest friend. We will all at least say that we appreciate honest friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, friend who tells us what they're really thinking until it hits a little too close to home. But we are at least aware enough to recognize a tremendous long-term benefit of someone who doesn't sugarcoat, somebody who doesn't flatter, or pretend. Sincerity, openness, and honesty, old word, candor, those are the marks of true friendship. You're not going to find a more honest or more truthful friend than Jesus. He moves in close with the truth. And he's never insincere. He never deceives us. He never manipulates us. He never plays with the facts with us. He shoots extremely straight. <laughs> he is our standard of straightness. And this is essentially what the whole scripture is, right? It's his words to us, his truth. But if we're looking for an example of this, the first one that came to my mind is in the opening chapters of Revelation. Revelation 1-3. And in those chapters, we're not going to turn there, but in those chapters, Jesus has uh, seven letters written to seven churches. And in those letters, he both affirms them, but he also evaluates them and speaks truthfully to the churches. 
And he sometimes issues sober warnings to them, if necessary. And his assessments are accurate. And he makes us aware in his perfect wisdom to the areas that are, that are harmful to us. And that's the idea of, of the honesty of Jesus' friendship toward us. He speaks truthfully to us. And this is really incredible. We can be confident in our communion with Christ that he is going to tell us the truth. We never have to wonder about his motives for us. And that comes to bear whenever we're going through difficulty and hardship, doesn't it? We never have to wonder about his motives. He will always speak truthfully and deal truthfully and honestly with us. And if we kind of were to turn this point a little bit like a diamond, we could see another refraction of light here. Another aspect to an honest friendship is his openness and transparency with us. This might be a little interesting for you, but Jesus is open and transparent to us. John 15 is, is pretty, pretty clear on this. Jesus says that we're no longer his servants, but we're his friends, since we know what he's doing. Note, hear this language. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. So in other words, the servant's just kind of obeying. He's kind of doing stuff. master's telling him what to do. Servant's getting it done. You know, just do it. Don't ask me why. But now, I have called you friends, Jesus says. And his death's going to affect that for us. Why is he calling us friends? What does, that, what does that mean in this context? For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Listen, he's talking to his apostles there. He's talking about, you know, the Spirit being given to them and inspiring revelation. Yeah, but who has the revelation now? We do. So the New, the New Testament is quite literally Christ opening his heart to us um, or opening the Father's heart to us if we want to stay consistent with this passage. But this is, this is openness. Jesus has opened himself up to us. He's shown us his heart. He's revealed the Father's plans. He's told us what we can expect and look forward to. Why? Because he thinks of us as friends. Jesus has let us in on what he's doing in the world and he has invited us to participate with him in it. Say it differently. Jesus is not guarded with us. He's not skeptical that we might hurt him. And so he keeps us at arm's length. He's brought us in fully, fully into the family, fully into the covenant, and fully into the friendship. So, it's incredible. Uh, number six. Finally, last one today. Jesus is a strong friend. He's a strong friend. And this is, this is pretty obvious. We value friends who can sit with us in the dust, so to speak, even when they can't change anything about our circumstances. You know? It's like enough for them just to be with us. But Jesus' friendship toward us is full of strength. Like, real strength. It's full of God's power to work in and through us and, and full of ability to transform even the most destructive situation. He's a strong friend. The strongest friend. We've already looked at Paul's testimony, but I'll throw it up here again. I, I don't want you to miss one aspect of this. How you should notice what else he said that Jesus did for him. Besides just standing with him, 
he actually provided Paul with real strength. See that underlined portion? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So he provided, he provided strength for Paul in that moment where Paul was weak in and of himself, tempted to deny the Lord, not open his mouth, not speak boldly. And then here comes Jesus showing up, whatever that was like. He doesn't tell us, but he provided strength for Paul. Jesus is an incredible friend because he can and does actually supply real power when we go to him in our weakness not a hypothetical power. He's not under someone else's authority or control. He's completely free. He's in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. And guess what? It pleases him to strengthen us. So these are six characteristics of our friendship with Jesus. And again, we're just scratching the surface. This is just a short, small glimpse of the kind of friend that we have in Jesus. And we could talk about this all day long from multiple angles. So, just a, just a few things to leave you with. Do you know him like this? Do you know him as your friend? Where are you at on the spectrum? Are you kind of casually treating him as your friend? Or... You're thinking of yourself as too unworthy for his friendship or somewhere, somewhere in that spectrum. If you don't have him as a friend, if you don't know him, he's currently your enemy. That's the reality. But he will gladly receive you as his friend today if you humbly come to him. And if you have received Jesus, this is who he is. This is, this is real truth. This is, this is reality. You've probably been a poor friend friend of the Lord, but that doesn't change his friendship toward you. And it's up to you whether you're really going to believe all this that Scripture says about him or not. And if you believe it, it will change you. And we're going to talk about this next week, how to respond to a faithful friend like this, but for now I just want to leave you with a couple things. It should take me about one minute. Not only is Jesus our friend, but he's made us his friends. Okay, so kind of shift the weight just a bit. He's our friend, but he's made us his friend. He's our example in friendship, and he intends us to reciprocate the friendship toward him. Okay? He says in John 15, you are my friends if you obey what I've commanded you. Not meaning that obeying the commandments, you get into the friendship. He gets you into the friendship. <laughs> But obeying the commandments proves whether or not you're really his friend. Friends are loyal to one another. And we are greatly privileged to be friends of the sovereign Lord, the King of the universe. And we are going to prove our loyalty to him as we learn to trust him and obey what he says. And that's the essence of what he, what he says here. You're my friends if you obey what I've commanded you. So there's a, a reciprocity to the friendship, which looks like loyalty to Jesus, not perfection, but a, but a life that's the life that's pursuing faithfulness to Christ in the friendship, and it transforms the way we think about obedience, doesn't it? That's the one thing I want to leave you with. We'll, we'll explore more next week, and then the next thing is that He is our model. The Lord is our model for the horizontal friendships that we have, our friendships with others. Jesus, as He teaches us the meaning of true friendship, and as we experience it from Him, we can then mimic Him 
in our relationships with other people. And this is transformative too, because instead of viewing others selfishly, viewing others to just meet my needs, kind of consuming friends, Jesus transforms you to become the kind of friend that he desires you to be. And man, we're going we're gonna to look at that more next week. So uh, there needs to be a part two, because I'm obviously out of time. and We can't cover all that right now. But it, it's massively transforming. Uh, just this one little theme, viewing Christ this way as he's revealed himself. Um, so more on this next week. And I hope you just have a great, great Thanksgiving as you reflect on the friend that we have in Jesus. Right? Let's pray.